You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Una Linsky. was a bit of a mixed bag in terms of Irish history. It was the beginning of a decade not marked by economic decline, and which would also see a number of important constitutional rulings, marking the beginning of rights movements in the country. It was the year that the women's liberation movement travelled to Belfast and rode back on what would become known as the contraception train, family planning being something that was generally frowned upon at the time. In January of that year, Archbishop John McQuaid, who had had a huge political influence, retired after 30 years in the post. Eamon de Valera was at that point President of Ireland, having played a vital role in the 1916 Rising more than half a century before. By September of 1971, a hundred people had been killed in the Troubles, which had started only three years previously. The 70s were a decade marking the beginning of a change here, with a generation coming of age who had no memories of the rising or the War of Independence, or even living under British rule. Just south of the small village of Rathoth, County Meath, this generation of young people were working. They worked on the farms owned by family or travelled south to Dublin City to work in offices or factories. Rathoth was a small village at this point in time with maybe about a thousand people living there, though it was still a relatively busy and focal point for the more spread-out neighbourhoods that dotted the countryside. South of Rathoth is the small townland of Porterstown. It is effectively made up of the homes that line Porterstown Lane, which connects the old main road from Dublin to Navan to the west, through another mid-sized town in the area Dunshocklin, and the Ferry House Road at its eastern end, which goes up to Rathoth. The people living on the road in the 70s were close, as you'd expect in a rural townland, given the relative isolation and proximity to one another. But there was yet another reason for the closeness. Many of the families living in and around Porterstown Lane were blow-ins to the area, having moved from the west of Ireland, Mayo specifically, in the first half of the century. In fact, many of them were related and shared the same names. Patrick Linsky, who lived on the small cul-de-sac on the lane, was originally from Belmullet, County Mayo, and his wife, Winifred, was also originally from Mayo. Her brother, Anthony Gagan, and his family lived next door to them. Patrick and Winifred had 12 children, who were as close as siblings to their next-door neighbour cousins. Una Linsky was the fifth of the twelve kids, and in October of 1971 she was 19 years old. She had gone to the local primary school in Rathoth before completing her secondary education as a boarding student at the Convent of Mercy School in Navan, County Meath. She sat her leaving certificate in 1970, and by the beginning of 1971 she was working for the Land Commission in Dublin City Centre. She was one of a number of young people who took a bus every morning from rural County Meath down to the city to work, and returned on the bus every evening. Her bus stop was on the Ferry House Road, at the east end of Porterstown Lane, and next to the home of another cousin, Anne Gagan, with whom Una took the bus every morning and evening. The teens in the area were pretty active. Despite the small roads and not living in a village per se, Many of those who lived and worked on Porterstown Lane hung around together. They all knew each other and got on reasonably well. They went to dances and the cinema and pubs together. And though they all worked hard, it wouldn't be unusual to find a few of the lads out at all hours having a laugh. Una also had a boyfriend, who she was totally in love with. His name was Patrick Kelly, and they had met at Una's sister's wedding. Una had been a bridesmaid, and Patrick had been the best man. 
By October, they'd been going out for nearly a year. Patrick had given Una his signet ring and a bracelet with his name on it, and she wore or carried them everywhere she went. It was a typical teenage love affair, and Patrick was her everything. That's why on the 10th of October, Una was very distressed when Patrick started talking about how they should think of breaking things off. That night, Una sat up crying, and the next day she wasn't able to get any work done. When her cousin Anne asked her how she was on the bus home that evening, Una began to cry again, telling her what Patrick had said, and how upset she had been all day. But when Una got home, she spoke to Patrick, who changed his mind and said he wouldn't end things. Una then told him she wasn't feeling well, she had a pain in her stomach and had had it for a while, and he took her to a doctor's. They didn't go to the local GP for some reason and travelled to one in Swords, County Dublin. The doctor there gave her some pills and she told Patrick that it was nothing serious, and so they went to the Harp Bar in Swords for a drink before heading home. Patrick dropped Una off at a quarter to one that night. The next morning, Una got up and went to work as usual, but according to Anne, was in much better form than she had been the day before. They missed their regular bus, and though this would have usually bothered Una, she wasn't put out by it, and was happy enough to wait for the next one. Anne saw Una again at the bus stop at Store Street in the city centre again that evening. She said that at this time, Una seemed to be distracted. On the way back, she told Anne that she wasn't happy at home. She was annoyed at her family for some reason and said she wasn't going to speak to any of them when she got back into the house and that Patrick wanted her to move into a flat in Dublin. He was going to be moving to the city soon too. Una said that the doctor had told her she was run down and that she needed to take care of herself and eat certain foods. They also talked about a past pupil's dinner dance that was coming up the next week, which both girls would be attending and that they were excited about. They were getting new dresses for the dance and needed to arrange to have the final fittings done, and Una said she'd ring and arrange their tickets that evening. When they got to their stop on the Ferry House Road, they would have usually been joined by another regular on the bus, Danny Gagan, another of Una's cousins, who lived in the house next to hers. But he was at a night class that evening, so the two girls got off the bus that evening on their own. Anne made the time about five to seven, as did the bus driver and four other passengers. One woman said she thought it would have been more like five past seven as she'd been waiting for the bus on its return journey to Dublin, and the bus, she said, had been ten minutes late that night. Either way, the two cousins stood at the side of the road for only a minute. Again, this was something that was unusual. They'd often stand chatting there for a while, but that night, Una wasn't feeling well, and it was the first evening that they really felt the cold coming on, and so it was a quick goodbye before Anne turned to her own gate, and Una began her walk up Porterstown Lane. She was on her own. The lane was not lit, and was lined with the typical hedgerows. It was just before 7pm, and Una Linsky would not be seen alive again. Just after 7, a number of people, neighbours, heard screams coming from Porterstown Lane. At 20 to 8, Una still hadn't arrived home. Her mother was worried, and so sent Una's 14-year-old brother, Andrew, out to look for her. He called at the neighbouring Gagan house, but Una wasn't there, and so he headed down Porterstown Lane towards Anne Gagan's home, near to the bus stop. Anne's father, Patrick, became worried when Andrew said that Una hadn't come home yet. He knew Anne had seen her off at the bus stop nearly an hour before. Patrick had heard the screams from Porterstown Lane, and the urgency of the situation struck him. Patrick got in his car, with his son John also running to get into his own, and both headed to Una's house, with her brother cycling behind them. She still wasn't home when they arrived. They called down to Una's sister's house, which was also nearby, but she wasn't there either. John Gagan then drove out to Patrick Kelly's house to see if Una had gone there. Patrick had been in bed for ten minutes when John called at the door and told him that he hadn't seen Una since the night before. Patrick threw on his clothes and went straight over to the Linsky house. Everyone seemed to instinctively know that something was horribly wrong. 
when Patrick arrived there and saw that Una still hadn't made it home, he went to Dunshockland Garda Station and raised the alarm. He reported her missing that evening at twenty past eight. The Gardaí now joined those in the small neighbourhood. They went about trying to ascertain Una's last known movements that evening, and word spread quickly to the few houses around. Many people were out searching for Una. Others gathered at an electricity pylon on the lane and began swapping stories of when they had last seen Una and what they had seen that evening. It was clear that a number of people had heard screams in and around 7pm, and others had seen a strange car around that time too. The lane was effectively blocked by the neighbours who had gathered at the pylon on the ferry house road end of the street. A car carrying three young men who lived and worked locally arrived back on the lane after driving about for a while and were met by all the people milling about. They were Dick Donnelly, Martin Kerrigan and Martin Conmey. They pulled up to the crowd and asked what was going on and were told about how Una hadn't arrived home. The lads had been in the area an hour or so before and told John Gagan that they'd seen a strange car around too. They said it was a Ford Zodiac. Dick seemed sure that this was the make of the car. He himself drove a Ford Zephyr, which was very similar in build, the only real difference being the number of headlights on the front end. Both were big cars, and unusual for the area, but Dick's was a 1964 model and had a strange paint job on it that made it look a sort of rosy tan. He called it honey gold. Dick's car was not in great nick. This other car, though, the Ford Zodiac, had been newer looking, they said, and dark coloured. After speaking briefly to John, the three drove on, collecting a girl, Irene Ennis, from her home on the lane and heading back out to the pub for a few more hours. When they returned to Porterstown Lane that night and realised that Una was still missing, they joined in the search. The panic of the missing girl had created a bit of a buzz in the area, and the energy had swept the young people along with it, with many of them out on what they saw as a bit of an adventure looking for her. Perhaps if they had known how serious the situation was, the atmosphere would have been different. As days went by, there was still no sign of Una, and journalists began to arrive in the area to get the full story. Everyone was still out searching in ditches and hedges, and so it was easy to speak to people, and the Gardaí were doing the same. Most of those who had travelled with Una on the bus agreed that she had gotten off at her stop between 6.50 and 6.55. The area around the lane had been fairly busy at that time of night, and yet it was a close-knit enough community that the unusual still stood out. A man who lived near to the lane, Michael McIntyre, was driving into Rathaut to collect his brother at about half six that night. He told the guardie that on his way there, he'd come across a dark-coloured Ford Zephyr, driving on the wrong side of the road. Michael had seen the driver, and had taken note because he was driving so dangerously. He said he saw a stout, middle-aged man, balding, who appeared to have a red face. A similar car was seen by a younger man around the same time. He described it as dark and said that he saw the letters ZY on the side. The man driving he described as in his thirties or forties of small build with dark hair and side locks. Around the same time that Una was getting off her bus on Ferryhouse Road, at the other end of the lane, a bus had stopped to let some relatives and neighbours off on the Dublin to Navan Road. Pora Gagan, who lived next door to Una, walked up the lane with Mary Madden and Michael and Jenny Riley. Horig's sister Kathleen was a few hundred metres ahead of them, having gotten off another bus just minutes before. The group had been walking for quite a few miles when Porig heard a noise. He turned to look behind them and saw a car. He said, quote, It was that type of car that crept up on you. You'd know it wasn't one of the local lads because their cars were noisy. It was a lovely flashy car, dark in colour. At the time I thought it was a Zephyr, but now I know it was a Zodiac. No one in the area had anything like it at the time, 
They were all small farmers, and it was only government people or wealthy people you'd seen a car like this. It was probably no more than ten yards away from me when I turned around, so I got a good look at the driver. He was a middle-aged man, well-dressed in a coat and tie and jacket. His hair seemed to be combed back off his forehead, and he had a heavy mop of hair, brownish, maybe going a little grey. He looked to be a stocky man, but not tall. End quote. The car passed the group and then passed Porig's sister Kathleen, who had stopped to speak to another neighbour, Mary Collins. Both women remembered the car, thinking that it looked like a Ford Zephyr. Kathleen said she thought it was a greyish brown, and Mary said it was more of a chocolate brown. Neither of them saw who was driving it as it passed them by, going about 50 miles an hour. Kathleen said her goodbyes to Mary as the cold was getting to her and she continued on home, and just as Kathleen got to the corner of the cul-de-sac, which was midway along Porterstown Lane, she heard a scream, followed by two more a minute or so later. She said they came from the direction of the bridge on the lane, which was over at the ferry house end of the road, the direction that Una had been coming from. She was a bit worried at the noise and so stopped at the corner waiting for Danny and Una to arrive. The cold drove her inside. She said she got in her front door at five past seven. Mary Collins, who Kathleen had just left, also heard the screams, as did Pori Gagan, who was still making his way towards home. Ethel Gardner, who was leaving her mother's house on the ferry house road, heard screams too at around five past seven, coming from the Porterstown Lane area or nearby fields. Patrick Gagan, Anne's father, heard them too while he was outside at a well to draw water. At about that time, in the minutes just after 7pm, James Donnelly was driving his car down the ferry house road towards Porterstown Lane. As he got to the lane, a large car pulled out of it, with the bonnet of the car being well into the lane that James was attempting to drive in. James had to hit the brakes to slow down and manoeuvre around the car, or else he would have run into it, which he described as a zephyr or a zodiac, either dark green or black in colour. He said that through the back window of the Ford, he saw a young girl who seemed to be standing in the back of the car. She had mid-length hair, brownish in colour, maybe very dark blonde, which was a bit wavy at the ends. She was wearing what looked to be a three-quarter length tan-coloured coat. She seemed to stand with her back to the driver while another man kissed her, and when he thought about it afterwards, James felt that the girl seemed frightened. James took a good look at the occupants of the car that had dashed out in front of him, with such a strange scene going on in the back. He'd looked at the driver dead on when he had to go out of his way to avoid hitting him. He said he was a man between 45 and 50 years old, with thinning hair going grey in the sides and the back. He had a thin nose, high cheekbones and a reddish complexion. The man was wearing a grey jacket and possibly a blue shirt. The car was an older model, but in very good condition. When James first saw the car begin to pull out in front of him, he thought that they intended on driving on to Rathoth, and so he checked his rearview mirror to see if they had followed but they didn't. They moved the car as if to head back towards the Navan Road. James didn't see the car pull out onto the Ferry House Road and so had no idea where it had gone. At about ten past seven, Sean Conmey was out milking the cows at the back of his house. He said around that time he looked up from where he was sitting at the back of the cowshed and could see that near to the ESB pylon there was a big black car parked on the lane. Someone was walking around the car with a flashlight. He couldn't see whether the person was a man or a woman as it was nearly fully dark at that point in the evening. Sean Conmey was the 15-year-old brother of Martin Conmey who, with Dick Donnelly and Martin Kerrigan, had recounted their movements the night of Una's disappearance to the Gardee. Dick was a very confident and funny 23-year-old who lived on the Ferry House Road, just outside Rathoth Village, and worked for a farmer on the Dublin-Navan Road. He finished his work in the field at 6pm and then made his way to his car, 
the funny-colored 1964 Ford Zephyr. It was pretty beaten up, and would later be described by the Gardaí as being in a dangerous condition, and so Dick needed a hand getting the car to start. The engine wouldn't turn over, and so his workmate gave him a push start, which got the battery going, and then, just before half six, Dick was finally on his way. He drove a short distance to another farm, owned by the Coils, to collect his 20-year-old friend Martin Conmey. They left there somewhere around 6.45, according to both the young men and Mr. Coyle, who Martin Conmey had been working with. Then they drove a short distance to Marty Kerrigan's house. He was the youngest of them, at 19. The lads chatted in the car for a bit, figuring out what they'd do with their evening, when Marty's sister came out and asked them for a lift to the shop to get a bale of briquettes to put on the fire. She reckoned that this was at about five past seven in the evening, given that she herself had gotten off a bus home at about ten to seven. The lads agreed to drive Kathleen Kerrigan to the little shop on the Navan Road, and the clerk there remembered seeing her at about ten past the hour. However, the Zephyr's arrival at the shops was also noticed by someone else. Garda Brian McKeown was sitting in his car waiting for a call to come through to the shop for him, at exactly 7pm that evening. He said he'd made sure to arrive well before the time to make sure that he was there to take it, and so when Dick's car pulled in and Kathleen went to get the fuel, Garda McKeown reckoned the time to have been 6.53 precisely. Garda McKeown is on his own with this timing, though. Kathleen, her father, mother, and sister all reckoned she was home from the quick run to the shops by ten past seven, or twenty past seven at the latest. The three lads were back into the car and headed to drop Martin Conmey home to Porterstown Lane. Both of Martin's parents heard and saw Martin come in that night. His mam Eileen was hovering in the kitchen waiting for him to come home from work. She recalled that the curtains were drawn and the lights were on. His dad, David, saw the lights on Dick's car while he was out feeding the calves. He came into the house a few minutes later. Both reckoned the time to be somewhere between quarter past seven and twenty past. Dick then drove to his own house with Marty in the car. As he made his way up the lane to the ferry house road, they came across another car parked on the other side of the road facing towards them as they came to it. It was a big, dark-coloured car and it was taking up more than half the road. Marty commented, Would you look at that Zephyr? And Dick said, No, 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 that's a Zodiac. It only has the two headlamps. Dick noted that the car was in very good nick. He didn't see anyone around it, but saw a briefcase and some papers on the passenger seat. He had to drive up on the verge to get around it, but once he was past, they were off back to his so he could grab some food before they all went out together that night. When Dick got home, he went in and ate his dinner quickly while Marty waited for him outside. Then the two drove back to Martin Conmey's to collect him. On the way up the lane again, there was no sign of the parked Zodiac. They called into another friend's who lived on the lane then at about ten to eight, but he wasn't in. His sister asked for a lift down to an area known locally as the Bush, and the lads agreed, so she hopped in the car. After that, they headed up to Dunshockelin to collect Martin Conmey's girlfriend before making their way to Rathoth and settling themselves there in Ryan's pub. And there they sat, oblivious of what was going on back on Porterstown Lane. After the Gardaí had taken all of their initial statements, it seemed clear to them and to the locals that the mysterious Ford Zodiac would have to be hunted down. They thought that the reg plate might end in 0-0, and so everyone was on the lookout for it. As the days passed with Una still missing, the notorious murder squad was sent in from Dublin, led by Detective Superintendent Dan Murphy and Detective Sergeant John Courtney. The first thing they did was gather up the statements from everyone who had been in the area of Porterstown Lane that evening. Among the many statements outlining everyone's movements that night, there were two statements of locals who put Dick Donnelly's car driving up the Ferry House Road around the same time Una was thought to have gone missing. 
That, along with the statement of Garda McKeown, shifted the three lads' timelines forward by 15 minutes or so, and piqued the experienced Gardie's interest. Two weeks after Una disappeared into thin air in a well-planned operation, Dick Donnelly, Martin Conmey and Marty Kerrigan were picked up within an hour of one another and found themselves each in a room of their own in Trim Garda Station, being questioned by the murder squad. The three men were picked up on Monday night, with questioning of them beginning at about 10pm. It went on through that night and into the next day, with no breaks and no sleep. Martin Conmey made a signed confession at half seven the next day, Tuesday, and Marty Kerrigan signed a confession at half one on the Wednesday morning. Dick Donnelly left the station early Wednesday morning, having made no such statement. Initially, Conmey had just outlined for police what he had said in his statement, that he finished work and had been in the car with Dick Donnelly and Marty Kerrigan for most of the evening, or in the pub in Rathout. This changed, though. After hours of questioning, Kami told the guardie that he had seen Una that evening. The evening had begun when Dick Donnelly picked them up from Coyle's farm and they'd driven through Rathout Village, which was where they came across Marty Kerrigan. He'd been sitting on the side of the road on his blue scooter, but joined them in the car. They then headed to Porterstown Lane, where they came across Una as she crossed the small bridge there and offered her a lift. Una got into the car, but they drove past the turn for the cul-de-sac towards her house. She began yelling and demanding to know where they were going, as the car neared the other end of the lane, and she tried to get out. Conmey said that then Marty had grabbed her by the hand to stop her, and she'd fallen against the window, banging her face, before going limp. Dick had then ordered Conmey out of the car to walk back up the lane to his house. The next day, he said he'd asked Dick if Una was all right, and Dick had told him that she wasn't, that the other two lads had taken her out towards Lucan and had left her body near a railway bridge there. But when Conmey was asked to sign a statement to this effect, he refused. He then said that what he had just told the Gardie was incorrect, that his first statement was the truth. But a few hours later, Conmey had made a signed statement confessing to his part in the disappearance of Una Linsky. Close to midnight, Martin Conmey and Martin Kerrigan were brought into the same room, and Kerrigan was asked to confirm Conmey's story. He was confused at first, but then he said that yes, he did remember. He said that after Conmey had got out of the car, he and Dick had driven out to somewhere between Clonee and Lucan, and that he himself had lifted Una's body from the car and left it by the railway bridge. As the questioning continued, though, Kerrigan would say that he and Dick had left Una's body in a wooded area close to Rathbegan, and then that they had put her body in a pond. Yet still another signed statement where the confession was made. Meanwhile, after questioning had turned up results with Conmey and Kerrigan, Dick Donnelly's questioning continued in another nearby room. But Donnelly was adamant that he had not seen Una that night, and that the three lads had been driving about and in the pub that night, and that was all. It was on the Tuesday before the three lads' families realised that they were in Trim Garda Station. When the Kerrigans arrived, they found Marty lying near-naked in the fetal position on the floor of his cell. Despite the fact that none of them had been cautioned and were therefore, at least theoretically, free to leave at any time, the Kerrigans applied to the court for an order of habeas corpus for Marty, saying that he was being held unlawfully. Shortly after this, all three were released. Martin Conmey got a lift home with his dad and shortly after Kerrigan and Donnelly were released as well. But no one had been told that they were being let out and there was no one to meet them. The two men had to begin walking home and were, after 13 miles, able to hitch a lift the rest of the way with a neighbour. In the aftermath of the prolonged questioning, the families of the three young men were sure that they had little to worry about. Despite two of them having signed statements, 
they reckoned it would soon be clear that they were false and that there was no truth to them. But the news that Donnelly, Conmy and Kerrigan had been held and questioned got out, and further information seemed to make its way to Una Linsky's family. Soon there were strange cars doing a slow drive past each of the lads' houses in an attempt to intimidate them. The word murderer was painted on the roads outside their homes, as well as a crude drawing of a noose. Complaints to the guardie about this went unheeded. On Friday the 10th of December 1971, two months after Una's disappearance, a farmer was cleaning a drain on a road near to Glendue in the Dublin mountains, nearly 20 miles away from Rathoth and Porterstown Lane. He noticed some scrub where there should have been none, and thinking that someone had dumped and covered a dead sheep or something, he had a closer look. Instead, he found a human skull, and immediately rang the guardie. Una Linsky had finally been found. Professor Morris Hickey was called in. The body was in very poor condition, in advanced decomposition, but was still fully clothed in a coat, cardigan, dress and slip, all looking undisturbed. Una had not suffered any broken bones, including the small bones at the neck, which might indicate strangulation. There was no way to determine cause of death. She was still wearing the signet ring that her boyfriend Patrick Kelly had given her. When the news broke back in Meath, the community at Porterstown Lane had very divisive feelings on the matter. Those who had been questioned and accused felt vindicated that this showed that they had had no knowledge of the crime and that the confessions were untrue. They were growing tired of being targeted. The Gardaí had made no moves to arrest them, and though they had deep sympathy for the Linskys, they thought that it was time to go about finding out who had actually been responsible for Una's death. Meanwhile, this delay in laying charges combined with finding Una's body did nothing but increase the frustration of the Linsky family and friends that no one had yet been charged, and they were convinced that the three lads had had something to do with it. Things were reaching a boiling point in the small community. The day after Una's body was discovered, Marty Kerrigan and his older sister Eileen drove into Rathoth, and Eileen went into Ryan's pub, leaving Marty alone in the car. When she went into the pub, she had a quick word with the bartender, but people noticed her and knew that Marty would not be far off. Six men pushed past her, yelling that Kerrigan was outside. The six men, all relatives of Una's, surrounded the car and made attempts to pull Marty from it, but he slid across into the driver's seat and managed to drive away. On the 15th of December, Una was buried. Her grief-stricken family, particularly her mother Winifred, visited her grave daily. On the 19th of December, Winifred said she had been at the graveyard when she spotted Marty Kerrigan, who had jeered her and made rude hand gestures at her. When she got home, she told her sons about it, and they were furious. That day, Marty Kerrigan and Dick Donnelly had been out drinking. They arrived at Mara's pub in Rathoth when it opened at 4pm and stayed until closing. When they got outside, Marty saw Una's boyfriend, Patrick Kelly, who was sitting in a parked car nearby. Marty began shouting at Patrick, he was frustrated that people still suspected him in Una's death when he had had nothing to do with it. But his friends pulled him away and they went to speak to a local Garda, who was also sitting in a parked car nearby. Garda Harty offered to drive Marty and his friends out to a dance that was being held in Kilmoon, and so they all got into the car and drove away. Meanwhile, Patrick Kelly went to John Gagan's house on the Ferry House Road. Two of Una's brothers, James and Sean, were there too, with a few friends. Kelly told them all about how Marty had gone off on him and said that Marty had kicked his car. That was all it took for the rage and frustration to finally spill over. The lot of them jumped into two cars and went looking for Marty Kerrigan. Sean Linsky brought along with him a bread knife that they'd used slicing an apple pie earlier in the evening back when things had been more calm. 
The trip in the Garda car out to Kilmoon had been interrupted when they came across an accident that had taken place on the way there. Garda Harty had taken the people involved into a local's house to speak to them, and so Kerrigan and his friends got out of the car and were milling about on the dark road, waiting for their driver's return. When Garda Harty was in the house, the two cars of men that were out looking for Kerrigan found him and stopped. The men jumped out of the car and a huge brawl between the two groups broke out. A good few of them were fighting their own cousins. Marty was hit and fell, banging his head off the road before Sean Linsky grabbed him by the hair and threw him into a green mini being driven by John Gagan, who had stayed in the car. John started up the engine and began slowly driving off while his friends scrambled to jump in before he sped away towards the Dublin mountains. In the confusion, it took a few minutes for Kerrigan's friends to realise that not only was the green mini gone, but so was Marty. When the car arrived back at John Gagan's house, there was a crowd of people there waiting for them. Again, the community had rallied around. Kerrigan's guilt or innocence was irrelevant. The group shouldn't have attacked him and driven off. But Marty wasn't with the group when they got back. The Gardaí were waiting for John Gagan and Sean and James Linsky when they walked into the house. Initially, they told the Gardaí that they'd only brought Marty as far as the Ferry House Road, that they'd let him out of a car there and they'd seen him get into another. But that wasn't the truth. John Gagan told Garda Harty soon after his initial statement what had really happened. They'd brought Marty up to where Una had been found. On the drive there, they'd repeatedly asked him what he'd done to Una, but he would say nothing. They rolled him out of the car when they got up there and left. He'd been quiet, they said, play-acting. Given that the crowd outside was growing ever more boisterous and angry, the three were taken away to the Garda station. At 3am, Gardie from the Dundrum station found Marty. He was in the same spot the other three lads had left him, dead. When James Linsky was told that Marty had been found, and that he wasn't alive like the men had claimed, he put his head into his hands and said, quote, Ah Lord, I don't know how he could have died. It must be very easy to kill someone. End quote. John Gagan was also shocked, but Sean Linsky said he didn't care, convinced that Marty had been involved in his sister's death. He said, quote, I don't care if I'm strung up in the morning, end quote. Martin Kerrigan had obvious signs of his assault when he was found. His trousers were ripped apart at the seams, and his shirt was also ripped open, so that he lay there with his thighs and abdomen exposed. He had wounds to his mouth, head, arms, shoulders, and chest. The worst of the damage was found at the post-mortem. There was a three-inch cut to his body, which seemed to indicate that someone had attempted to castrate him. It was a small mercy that this wound was inflicted post-mortem. Three months later, in March of 1972, John Gagan and James and Sean Linsky stood trial for the murder of Martin Kerrigan. The court heard the full details of what the men had said had happened in the car that night. As John Gagan drove, the Linskys held Marty down in the back of the car. He was lying along the floor and one of the brothers had him by the hair. They each held onto a wrist and they shot questions at him about what he had done to Una. At first, all Marty would say was that he didn't know, but then he said that Dick Donnelly and Martin Conmey had been responsible. The car full of men had stopped at a petrol station on the way up the mountains, and Sean Linsky had held his hand firmly over Marty's mouth to stop him from screaming. He tore some of the skin in Marty's mouth and lips doing this. The second half of the journey was much quieter. The questions had stopped, and so had Marty's responses to them. They said that he just lay there quietly. When they got to the spot where Una had been found, they pushed Martin out of the car. He seemed unconscious and somewhat limp, but the men didn't think that he could be dead. They didn't check to see if he was or not. They then drove away. At the trial, Professor Morris Hickey gave evidence of his findings at the post-mortem. 
said that Marty had died from asphyxia when something had interfered with his breathing, and that a person's hand held over another's nose and mouth could cause a death such as this. He gave details of the cuts and bruises that Marty had suffered, including of the three-inch laceration, which he concluded had happened at least 15 minutes after Marty's death, but could have happened up to hours later. The estimated time of death was between midnight and 2am. Each of the men denied having made the three-inch wound or having torn Marty's clothing, and their defence team said it was entirely possible that Martin Kerrigan was still alive when the three men left him in the mountains. Perhaps, given his injured and drunken state, he had asphyxiated himself. The jury deliberated for ten hours before returning with a verdict of not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter for each of the men. Sean and John were sentenced to three years, and James, who was only 18 at the time, got two years in St. Patrick's Institution. Earlier in March 1972, in fact only a week before the trial for the killing of Martin Kerrigan began, Gardy finally made arrests in relation to the death of Una Linsky. They arrested Dick Donnelly and Martin Conmey. Both young men had been sure that after Una's body had been found, the Gardaí would have more evidence and would have begun looking elsewhere for answers. But they were wrong. Despite this, though, they and their families felt hopeful that a trial would clear their names once and for all of any involvement in Una Linsky's murder. On the 28th of June 1972, Martin Conmey and Dick Donnelly appeared at the Central Criminal Court with Mr. Justice Seamus Henshey presiding, charged with the murder of Una Linsky, to which they pled not guilty. The most important evidence for the state were the signed confessions and sightings of Dick Donnelly's car in Porterstown Lane just before 7pm. Both taken together supported the state's case that the confessions were at least partly true, and that the three lads had been in the area when Una was making her way home, up the dark lane. But of course, there were problems with this evidence. The first and most obvious thing was that the young men had been held and questioned by the guardee, and that they had been under the impression that they couldn't leave. On top of that, they said that they had been assaulted while in guard custody. Martin Conmey said that the guardee had attempted to intimidate him, they were aggressive in their questioning, and that they'd banged on the tables, yelled, and gotten in his face with gritted teeth. Just before he had given the written statement, he'd been dragged out of the chair he'd been sitting in by one of the officers, who then pushed the table out of the middle of the floor. He was then held there by the hair and punched in the face and shaken until he agreed to make the statement. When he got home from the station in Trim, his family were shocked. He was pale but swollen, and patches of his hair had been pulled out. Dick Donnelly had not made a confession, or a signed statement. He too said that he had been abused while in custody. And from their telling of what happened, he seems to have come out the worst for not giving in. He'd been yelled at, struck, and put under extreme pressure as well. But when he refused to admit to Gardi that he had had anything to do with Unalinsky, one member of the Gardashiakana, he alleged, picked up a poker from the fireplace and struck him over the back a number of times. Donnelly was seen by a doctor the next day when he was released, and the doctor gave evidence at the trial that he had observed four bruises on Donnelly's back that were approximately two inches wide and 14 inches long. He concluded that they had been caused by a long, blunt instrument. Donnelly also had bruising to his chest and shoulders, and his head and ears were noticeably black and blue. The court heard evidence from the girls that the lads had been out with that evening, which supported their initial statements to the guardie that they had been in a pub in Rathoth and had not returned to Porterstown Lane until near to half ten that night. Then evidence in relation to the car that had been seen in the Porterstown Lane area that night was heard. The first witness to give evidence in relation to it were Porig and Kathleen Gagan, the relatives that lived directly next door to Una and her family. They said that the only car that they had seen around that time that evening was the strange Ford Zodiac. 
They both refused to say that they thought it might have been, or even could have been, Dick Donnelly's car. The next witness to the stand to give evidence about the car was young Sean Riley, who lived at the Navan Road end of Porterstown Lane. He'd gotten home that night at about five to seven, and had been standing chatting at his front gate with a friend, Martin Madden, when he saw a car go past, coming from the Ferryhouse Road end of the lane, towards them and the Navan Road. But he wouldn't swear to it that the car that he had seen was Dick Donnelly's. In his witness statement, he'd said that it might have been, but he wasn't willing to go under oath and swear that that was the truth now. He'd said it was dark and he didn't see the driver of the car, nor could he be sure of the colour, or even the exact time that the car had passed him. He was the state's witness and yet the prosecution counsel asked to be able to treat him as a hostile witness because his evidence was different from what he had previously sworn, but this was denied. Then Martin Madden gave his recollection of the car that had passed the two that evening. But again, he said he couldn't recall the car clearly, that he didn't know its shape or size or colour, and he certainly had not seen who was driving it. Again, counsel for the state asked to treat his own witness as hostile, and in this instance, the judge allowed it. Madden was asked directly why his testimony now was not the same as the deposition he had given at the district court. There, he had given a sworn statement that he had heard the car, that he knew from the sound of it that it was big, he thought it looked orange, and from that he thought it was Dick Donnelly's car. Dick must have been driving it, and he said that he thought there were two others in the car. When this was put to him, Madden agreed that he had said this, but with further questioning it became clear that he had thought that the car was Dick's by the sound of it. He had assumed it was Donnelly's because the car to him had sounded like a larger car. That was all. Martin Madden also gave evidence that he had in fact seen Donnelly's car that night, at about 25 past seven. It was parked outside the Donnelly home with Marty Kerrigan sat in the front seat on his own, just like the lads had said it happened in their first statements to the guardee. In addition to Garda witnesses taking to the stand to deny that they had mistreated any of the three men who were assisting them with their investigations two weeks after Una's disappearance, they also gave insistent statements that every line of inquiry had been followed. That was despite admitting that there were a number of sightings of a strange Ford Zodiac with a middle-aged man driving in the area the night of the disappearance, and that car and its driver were never identified. The final witness in the state's case was Thomas Mangan. He was a labourer from County Mayo who was working in Dublin and living in Diggs in Clondalkin. In November of 1971, Martin Conmey had asked Mangan if he could move in with him. He told the court that a month before Una's body was found, Martin had confessed to him. According to Mangan, Conmey had told him that he and Dick Donnelly were driving down Porterstown Lane and that they had accidentally hit Una Linsky with the car. They took her body and left it in a ditch near to a mountain. Interestingly, Mangan didn't tell this story to the police until a month after Una's body had been found, after he had spent a decent amount of time avoiding the guardie who called to speak to him. When he made this statement, he was questioned in the station for over seven hours, but on the stand he denied that he had been intimidated by the guardie and said that reports he was visibly shaken after the experience were incorrect. After that, closing statements were delivered and Mr Justice Henshey gave his summing up. He said it was up to the jury to decide what weight to give the testimony of the various witnesses and that their decision effectively boiled down to whether they believed Dick Donnelly's car had been on Porterstown Lane that evening at about seven or whether he and Conmee were telling the truth that they had been elsewhere on their circuitous drive. He said that the witness evidence of Sean Riley and Martin Madden was, quote, much relied on by the prosecution as proving that Richard Donnelly, Martin Conmee and the late Martin Kerrigan were in the car that went from Barron's shop up Porterstown Lane, met Una Linsky, 
something happened which had fatal results, that the car turned back and came down Porterstown Lane towards the Navan Road. If this is not proved to your satisfaction, much of the prosecution case goes. It is essential for the prosecution case to show that Richard Donnelly's car met Unalinsky and took Unalinsky into the car and that something fatal happened. End quote. The judge, of course, made no mention of the unfamiliar Ford Zodiac that the others had seen that evening. The jury retired to deliberate, returning only once to ask for the definition of the term manslaughter. They filed back in after 12 hours of hard deliberation at half past two in the morning and acquitted both men of murder, but found them guilty of the lesser charge. Both were sentenced to three years' imprisonment for the unlawful killing of Unalinsky. The discussions of what goes on in the jury room in Ireland is entirely under seal, even after the proceedings have finished, so no one knows precisely what swayed them to believe the state's case that the three had not been where they said they were, and where the majority of witnesses put them that night nor do we have any clue the impact that Marty Kerrigan's killing may have had on their opinion. Perhaps they thought that there was no way he would have suffered that fate if he hadn't had something to do with Una's death, and that therefore the other two must have had something to do with it too. Both men appealed their convictions. Dick Donnelly's appeal was successful, but Martin Conmey's was not. This was due primarily to the signed statement he had made at Trimgarda Station and the confession evidence presented by Tommy Mangan. The families involved in the disappearance of Una Linsky and the killing of Marty Kerrigan distanced themselves from one another in most cases. Most moved out of the Porterstown Lane area, and after serving his time, Martin Conmey tried to go about rebuilding his life. After his direct appeal had failed, he was out of options to try and clear his name and had all but given up on the idea. That is, until he saw the Guilford Four step out of prison as free men in October of 1989. By that stage, Martin Conmey had married and had a six-month-old son. He thought if he didn't clear his name for himself, he should do it for his son. A private investigator, the pleasingly named Mr. Billy Flynn, was hired to look into the case. What he turned up were statements made by Sean Riley and Martin Madden. These were the first statements that they had made, and in them they had not said that they had seen Dick Donnelly or his car in the vital 15-minute window. These statements had not been turned over to the defence, nor had the prosecution asked their witnesses to account for why their statements had changed, even when one of those witnesses was treated as hostile and specifically questioned in relation to changes he had made from subsequent statements the state was relying on. They also got an account from Tommy Mangan, Martin Conmey's flatmate, that he had been subject to intimidation and aggression when he was questioned by the guardee. But there was nothing that could be done with this new information. That was until the Criminal Procedure Act of 1993 was introduced. It was a direct legislative response in Ireland to miscarriages of justice that had been seen in recent times, such as the Guilford Four and Birmingham Six in Britain. It meant that an applicant could appeal their conviction on the basis of new or newly discovered evidence. There was now a chance that Martin Conmey could clear his name. He went about bringing an application to court under Section 2 of the new Act, citing ten separate categories of newly discovered facts. The Criminal Court of Appeal heard the case and delivered its judgment in November of 2010. They found that the guardee had had the statements, quote, at all material times, end quote, and that they were radically inconsistent with what was offered at the trial. There was no explanation offered for the difference. Most shockingly, the court was told that one of the witnesses relied upon, Sean Riley, who was the only witness still living at the time, said he had been pressured by Gardie to change his statements. He said he was punched on the shoulder and told that the Gardie wanted information about Dick Donnelly's car. 
These revised statements were used as the basis of bringing these three lads to Trimgarda Station in the first place and being held there for up to 45 hours without sleep. It was only hours after Riley and Madden had changed their statements that Conmee, Donnelly and Kerrigan were first picked up and brought to the station. Gardy, who gave evidence at this hearing, however, denied that there was any physical abuse or threats used against the accused in this case, nor any witnesses. Detective Inspector John Courtney, who was the head of the team sent from Dublin to investigate Unit's killing, denied any mistreatment on their part. In relation to the changes in witness statements, he said, quote, It often happens that we have to go back to witnesses four or five times to get the full facts from them. End quote. He also stated that there was no such thing as the murder squad as it had become known, despite the fact that it's a group of Gardaí that now have legendary status. They were involved in many high-profile cases, including the Kerry Babies case covered in episode 6 of this podcast, and had been accused many times of improper treatment, assault, and intimidating people into false statements. However, this has never been proven in any court in the country. It's not particularly in the state's interest to do so, either, though. Ultimately, the Court of Criminal Appeal described the state's case as wholly circumstantial and relying entirely on unreliable witness statements. Martin Conmey's conviction was overturned. He then went about securing a miscarriage of justice certificate, which he got in 2014. Then, in November 2016, read in the High Court, and accompanied by compensation, Martin Conmey received an apology from the state. It said, quote, The Minister for Justice and Equality, on behalf of the state, wishes to formally acknowledge that Mr. Martin Conmey, who was convicted of certain offences in 1973 and served a term of imprisonment, was a victim of a miscarriage of justice. The state apologises unreservedly to Mr. Conmey, the state regrets the pain and loss experienced by Mr. Conmey as a result of his imprisonment and has taken steps to pay appropriate compensation to him. End quote. Martin was pictured in the papers standing on the steps of the four courts, smiling and hugging his wife. His name was finally cleared over 40 years after his conviction. The true killer of Una Linsky, however, has never been found. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favorite podcasts. A big thanks this week to our newest supporters on Patreon, Kevin Murphy, Rory, and one of my best friends, Esther Lysett. You guys are all so generous. Thanks for keeping the research materials flowing. If you'd like to help out, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. There are perks and bonus content up for grabs. One of the bonus episodes that's already out and ready for you to listen to is about women who have gone missing or been found dead in the Dublin and Wicklow Mountains, and the links to the notorious rapist, Larry Murphy. If you head over there and sign up, you'll get access to that and even more Irish true crime stories now. Thank you also to some recent five-star Apple Podcast reviewers. These are all from the Australian iTunes store. Thank you to Diamond Star 101, What About This, Hilofaz, or Hilofaz, Amy Who Digital, who's also one of our patrons, D Lind Q, and Skyzy2104. Thank you so much, guys, for your kind words and your encouragement. I love hearing from you, not only through feedback and reviews, but also on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. So don't be shy. Leave a review or tweet at me, and I promise you will totally make my day. Next time, we're off around the globe again, but this time in a totally different direction to look at how the murder of an Irish woman gripped the Australian nation and how we found out that that was just the tip of the iceberg. Our theme song is Quinn's song First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. 
This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources can be found in the show notes or by visiting our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Break, 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 and distance themselves from one another. Distanced them, distanced, distanced themselves from.